What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is an anthem from China's cultural revolution in the 1960s, one of the bloodiest eras in modern Chinese history. The people are singing, the east is red, the sun is rising, China has brought forth Mao Zedong. Mao was the founder of the Chinese Communist Party, and at the time, he believed it was straying in the wrong direction. So to try and regain control, he mobilized an army to get rid of anyone who was deemed not loyal enough to the communist ideology. On 16th of May, 1966, the Communist Party of China issues a directive. The Cultural Revolution begins as a decade-long political campaign. It calls for a purge of capitalist influences and bourgeois thinking in the government, teaching, media, and arts. At the time, current Chinese President Xi Jinping was really young, and he'd been living a relatively comfortable life. His father was a founding member of the Communist Party. And then one day, everything changed. When Xi Jinping was nine years old, his dad was purged. And Xi Jinping's whole life turned upside down. So he went from this childhood of extreme privilege growing up with nannies and housekeepers and security guards. And then all of a sudden he was being bullied in school, being ostracized. Uh, These red guards, the mobs of Mao Zedong, ransacked his home and his whole life was turned upside down. That's Sue Lin Wong. She's the host of The Economist's new podcast about Xi called The Prince. The show's about the president's rise to power, starting with his childhood. Xi Jinping's father was put in prison, and what followed was likely one of the most tumultuous periods of his life. When Xi Jinping was 13 years old, he was dragged into a courtyard by these red guards, forced to wear this dunce cap, which was this really, really heavy iron hat with Chinese characters written on it, his so-called crimes written on this hat. Uh, It was so heavy he had to hold it up with both hands. And people shouted slogans at him like, down with Xi Jinping. Now what's extraordinary is that even his mother was there and even she was having to denounce her own son. That's how insane this period of modern Chinese history was. Xi Jinping has also talked about how these red guards set upon him, attacked him and gave him five minutes to live. So he genuinely feared for his life back then. He was put into a detention centre And one rainy night, he jumped out of a window from that detention center, ran home to his mom and said, Mom, 
I'm tired, I'm hungry, can you give me some food? It was raining, so he was drenched. And she said to him, no, you've got to go. It's too dangerous for you to be here. And so he burst into tears and ran back out into the dark night, crying and hungry. Pretty soon after that, when Mao Zedong decided to send millions of urban youth to the country to learn from peasants about the glory of hard work, she was one of them. So Xi Jinping was sent to this village. The conditions were incredibly austere and simple. There was no electricity. Uh, when he got there, he was shocked um, at you know how, how little there was. Many of the villagers were starving. He uh, was covered in flea bites. He had to sleep uh, surrounded by pesticide to try to ward off the fleas. He couldn't handle it, basically, and ran back to Beijing, where he was caught and put in a labor camp and forced to lay sewer pipes. And after a year, he decided he was going to return to the village and try to make a better go of things. And according to the official propaganda, that was when he found himself. This time in the village was this moment of rejuvenation when he decided to commit himself to the Chinese Communist Party. This is a defining moment for me. It enriched my life experience, deepened my knowledge, it reshaped my identity, and gave me the foundation for further growth later in life. Su Lin says this is what sets Xi apart, that unlike many of his contemporaries who decided to leave the party at that time, he decided to fully commit. And what his conclusion was from his childhood and from the Cultural Revolution wasn't that the Chinese Communist Party in and of itself was bad. It was that the party had lost control. And so if he ever rose to the top of the party, he decided he would make sure that the party would never lose control again. Under Xi Jinping, not losing control has been a priority for the Chinese Communist Party. Just look at Xi's handling of issues like dissent, corruption, and surveillance. And it's expected that that control's only going to get tighter. This week, at the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress, Xi is expected to receive an unprecedented third term. That'll make him the longest-serving leader since Mao Zedong. Xi Jinping is about to take his place in history. His power uncontested and complete. Addressing the... Today on the show, we're going to look back at Xi Jinping's path to power, how that helps us understand his legacy so far, and what that could tell us about China's future. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hey, Sulin, it's great to talk to you. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much. So I've been listening to your podcast and I'm learning so much about Xi Jinping's life that explains his worldview and what drives him. And we heard about his decision to embrace the Communist Party. But why do you think he did that? Why do you think, despite everything that he went through, he decided to go back and embrace this ideology? Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, raised Xi Jinping and his brothers and sisters 
to believe that they too were revolutionaries. So Xi Jinping talks about how as a kid, his father would talk about the revolution and the founding of the People's Republic and tell his children that you too will be revolutionaries. And, you know, he he tried to raise them in this very, very brutal, frugal way. Xi Jinping talks about how he and his brothers and sisters had to bathe in his father's used bath water. Another fundamental part of Xi Jinping's childhood was that he was raised to believe that he was a true inheritor of the communist revolution. So Xi Jinping's dad, along with Mao Zedong and and that generation, founded China, but Xi Jinping's generation was going to make China even stronger and rejuvenate the Chinese Communist Party. So this is something that was drummed into Xi Jinping even from when he was a kid. And Xi Jinping doesn't typically say a lot about himself, right? But he's talked about that experience publicly on on a bunch of different occasions. And how does he use that story? Chinese politics is a black box, mostly, and it's so hard to find out so many different aspects of Xi Jinping's life. One thing that is very evident is that Xi Jinping's time living in a cave in the Chinese countryside as a teenager is an integral part of the official narrative. And his time there is portrayed as one where he went in as this entitled city kid and comes out this committed party man who's resilient and hardworking. He talks quite openly about his experiences in the village and what he learnt from the villagers and what he learnt from his hard work. And all of that contributes to this image of Xi Jinping as a man of the people in China. And, And many ordinary Chinese people know of this narrative and know of this narrative of how he suffered. And you can tell when he talks about it that it did have a profound impact on him. In the podcast, for example, you talk about how he brought up the hardship that he faced during the Cultural Revolution in the lead up to the Tiananmen Massacre. Um, Tell me a bit more about that. In the West, when we think of 1989 and the pro-democracy student protests around Tiananmen Square, we think of images of idealistic students and workers. The was overshadowed by students demanding change in China itself. And today, hundreds of thousands of Chinese from all walks of life have joined the students in the streets. But in fact, those protests had spread all across China, including to the southern Chinese province of Fujian, where Xi Jinping was at that time. And he was running one of the bigger towns in that province where there were also protests. And he, in fact, stopped a convoy of students trying to enter the town to protest. He gave this really extraordinary speech in May 1989, the month before the crackdown in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, where he talks about the Cultural Revolution and he talks about his childhood and how Red Guards ransacked his family home. And he says stability and unity is the number one priority. And without stability and unity, we have nothing. And do we want to return to the chaos of the Cultural Revolution? So even then, he knew what the party line was and he knew what he had to do as a rising party official. What kind of insight do you think Xi's 
childhood and his experience of moments like the Cultural Revolution and Tiananmen Square, what kind of insight do you think they give us into the way that China has been dealing with dissent in recent years on things like Hong Kong, you know, on the persecution of Uyghur Muslims or even criticism of the Chinese Communist Party internally? Xi Jinping has this real fear of chaos and this real desire for control. Over the past 10 years in China, we've seen a revitalization of the national security complex, and that is very much driven by Xi Jinping himself. Uh, And in the West, we often understand national security to be one about external threats like terrorism, whereas in China, national security is much more broadly defined as anything that threatens the party's grip on power uh, and anything that threatens the ability for the party to control the country. So in Hong Kong, the party saw it increasingly as this base of dissent and a place where people were undermining the party's control. And that's why we've seen such a sort of heavy-handed response from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, imposed this draconian national security law in 2020 and has turned what was once this free and open city into a police state. China's national parliament has approved a controversial national security law for Hong Kong, which criminalizes acts of sedition and terrorism. Now, this coming as the national... You brought this up a little bit earlier, but you devote a significant chunk of time on the podcast to Xi Jinping's time in Fujian province as kind of a low-level politician. And he spent 17 years there, which is a pretty long time. What did he see in that time that you think influenced his politics? So Xi Jinping spent 17 years in Fujian province in southern China which when he arrived in 1985 was one of the poorest provinces in the country. Uh, But over his 17 years there, its economy really took off and a fundamental part of that was corruption. And so, you know, there were business people who had very, very close ties to local government officials but also had connections to the very, very top of the party in Beijing. At one point, you know, there was a huge smuggling ring in the province uh, and this one man and his smuggling empire was importing one-sixth of all of China's oil. So that gives you a sense of just the scale of the corruption and the scale of the smuggling and, you know, how closely business and politics operated. Su Lin points out that unlike other Chinese leaders who were technocrats or who came up through other parts of the party, Xi Jinping really is a tried and tested politician. He started his career at the lowest rung of local politics and he rose up. So he must have seen all kinds of, you know, sort of brutal, ruthless, violent things uh, as a member of the biggest political party in the world. Back in the 80s and 90s when, you know, China was much poorer uh, and developing at a really, really rapid pace. And being able to see up close the dangers of unchecked corruption in those years likely informed the ruthless approach he's taking to dealing with corruption since taking office. Ten years ago when Xi Jinping came to power, corruption was rampant both across China but also within the Communist Party. 
Xi Jinping launched a signature corruption crackdown to try to get rid of it. Uh, and you know, more than 4 million people have been caught up in this crackdown, which continues to this very day. Now, it's also been very, very convenient for him as a way to get rid of his political rivals. So his signature campaign both genuinely did crack down on corruption, but also was a way for him to purge his enemies. Uh, And so, you know, fast forward 10 years to where we are today. And, you know, many ordinary Chinese are genuinely very, very happy with his campaign. And, you know, petty corruption has really um, been clamped down on. If you're in the political elite in China, you are really benefiting from a lot of the corruption, from a lot of the wheeling and dealing. And so their attitude towards Xi's corruption campaign is quite different from from that of ordinary Chinese. And, you know, Xi Jinping has made a lot of enemies at the very, very top of the party. We unswervingly uphold a zero-tolerance policy for corrupt acts. We vow to investigate any corrupt case and punish every corrupt official so that there is no hiding place for corrupt officials in the party. Sun's demise comes as President Xi Jinping intensifies his anti-corruption campaign. Since it began more than five years ago, more than a million party officials have been disciplined. Analysts say Xi's campaign is really about eliminating political rivals. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, so so about a month after he entered office in 2012, Xi Jinping gave this private speech to party leaders about the lessons that they should take from the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is something that the CCP as a whole seems kind of haunted by. This event also seems to be pretty central to Xi Jinping's ideas around corruption. Can you talk about that a little bit? One of the most important things to remember about Xi Jinping is that he is haunted by the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union's in political and economic turmoil. Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have already voted overwhelmingly for independence. On Sunday, each of the 15 republics will take part in a national referendum to stay with Moscow or break away. From the West perspective, you know, many people celebrated its collapse. Whereas in China, the view, at least from the party, was very different Uh, because, you know, the the Communist Party in China sort of used to look up to the party in the Soviet Union as a sort of big brother. And in China, the collapse of the Soviet Union is studied very carefully. um, And it's more about, you know, what lessons can we learn to avoid that same fate? And what the 
dominant narrative is is that the Soviet Union uh, was full of corruption. The party had lost ideological control over the country. And as a result, ordinary people in the Soviet Union were not convinced by the party's mission there. And so the Chinese Communist Party sees cracking down on corruption and ramping up ideological discipline as fundamental to its survival. And so in this really interesting speech that Xi Jinping gave in 2012, he says that when Gorbachev allowed the breakup of the Soviet Union to happen, nobody was man enough to stand up and resist. But Xi Jinping clearly thinks he is man enough. And, you know, after his experiences during the Cultural Revolution and over nearly two decades of navigating the corruption and crime and extraordinary changes in Fujian province, Xi Jinping understood power. And there's this very famous quote from Xi Jinping where he says, you know, people who have little experience with power, who see it from afar, always see it as mysterious and novel. But what I see is not just the superficial things. I don't just see the flowers and the glory and the applause. I see the jails and the hypocrisy of the world. And so I think Xi Jinping really understands power and he is doing everything in his power to try to exert control uh, across the country. Yeah, so he's done a whole bunch of things to cement his grip on power. He's uh, purged a lot of officials. He's filled vacant seats with allies. He's made it hard for journalists to report freely in the country. Um, I know he's put his own thought into the Constitution, abolished term limits. Now he's gotten himself this unprecedented third term. Why is it important for Xi Jinping to consolidate his power right now? What are the challenges that he's facing in this moment? The two biggest challenges that Xi Jinping currently faces are COVID and a slowing economy. And so, you know, three years into COVID, most other countries have moved on and are trying to live with COVID, whereas China is still stuck in this zero COVID cycle. And that's having all kinds of effects, including um, a very, very negative impact on China's economy. Retail sales and factory output in China slumped to two-year lows in April, while unemployment climbed to two-year highs. The new figures show the growing economic damage wrought by the country's ongoing COVID-19 lockdowns. Retail sales. Okay, so so just going back to what we were talking about, the challenges that he's facing right now, which are COVID and the slowing economy. Um, You mentioned before that that Xi Jinping his anti-corruption policies are very popular with people. And I'm just wondering, like, do we have an idea of how much frustration there is among the public with him when it comes to the economy with COVID? And like, do we have a sense of how much support he has in the country? One of the big questions I grappled with making The Prince, this podcast series about Xi Jinping, was what do ordinary Chinese people think of him? And it was just so difficult to answer for a couple of reasons. So first of all, over the past 10 years, Xi Jinping has created these high-tech 
uh, machines. So he has this censorship machine, this propaganda machine, and this surveillance machine. China has more than half of the world's security cameras, for example. Uh, And so all of this combined has created this very, very repressive society inside China where it's very hard for us from the outside looking in uh, to try to figure out what people actually think and what they actually feel. Um, And and even if we do get a a glimpse, it's often just of one tiny pocket of Chinese society. So that would be the first thing I would say. The other thing is because of all these machines that he's created, it's now increasingly difficult for popular discontent to bubble up to the surface, whether that's online in terms of people just posting about their unhappiness or actual physical protests. So last week we saw this extraordinary protest in Beijing where this very brave man hung a banner on one of the main bridges in the city saying, you know, down with Xi Jinping, we don't want a tyrant, we don't want a dictator, um, and, you know, we don't want lockdowns, we don't want COVID tests, we want food, we want freedom. That caused a huge stir internationally, and for the few Chinese who saw the protest, um, it was you know it was it was very very striking. But almost immediately, the police showed up. They took the man away. Discussion was um, muted on Chinese social media. People who were sharing the photo of the banner on their own WeChat accounts, their, the main type of social media in China, had their WeChat accounts blocked permanently, which, you know, cuts you off from from so much in, in China if you don't have access to WeChat. So, you know, even just a protest like that is, is a lens into how hard it is to voice discontent and voice dissent in China nowadays. We've spent the last little while talking about Xi Jinping and the events that shaped him as a politician. And I feel like I've learned a lot just by talking to you, listening to the podcast. And I I follow the news pretty closely and it made me it's made me more aware of my own knowledge gaps. And I wonder, as you were making this podcast, did you come away with any reflections of your own about you know, your own reporting and like what Western media gets wrong when we're covering Xi Jinping and China. One thing I really wanted to do when making this podcast was just try to deeply understand Xi Jinping on his own terms and, and try to understand, you know, the the context in which he grew up, what was happening in China at that time and what kind of family he came from and, and so, you know, what might drive him and motivate him. Um, and I think the risk sometimes as a foreign correspondent covering China, is that we bring our own worldviews and our own assumptions. And that is sort of our starting point. Whereas I think, you know, it's fine for us to draw very, very different conclusions and be, you know, highly critical of, of what we're seeing in China right now and what Xi Jinping is doing to the country. But I think in order to do that, the starting point has to be, let's first try and deeply understand Xi and his intentions on his own terms. Sulin, thank you so much. This was really interesting. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was lovely to chat. (laughs) 
So before we let you go today, I want to quickly mention another story we're watching. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Liz Truss has stepped down as the Prime Minister of the UK after just 44 days in office. This makes her the shortest serving leader the country's ever had. And a lot of people saw this coming. Mr. Speaker, a book is being written about the Prime Minister's time in office. <laughs> Apparently, it's going to be out by Christmas. Is that the release date or the title? <laughs> This has left the UK once again in a state of instability. During Truss's short time in office, the markets crashed after a mini-budget was proposed by the government that included billions in unfunded tax cuts for the country's wealthiest. This was followed by a series of cabinet resignations and backbenchers saying that they weren't confident in their new leader. Given the situation, Truss said she couldn't deliver on the mandate on which she was elected. The Conservative Party is expected to choose a new leader over the course of the next week. But some opposition leaders are raising the question of whether it's time for a general election. We're going to keep an eye on the story in the days to come. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designer is Julia Whitman. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Special thanks to Albert Lung for his help with dubbing on this episode. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.